Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. It's October, and I'm walking alone in the Utah desert, following a little X on a map. It's dry. I mean, it's really dry. I'm in a canyon of yellow sandstone peppered with pebbles and sand and scrub. The scrub is covered in thorns. There's life in that life-in-the-desert kind of way, but it's fleeting, sparse. The late afternoon sun brings a blinding white glare. Did I mention how dry it is? And who even knows if this X leads anywhere anymore? It's an old map, and I've followed similar X's before and not found anything at all. It's hot, and I'm thirsty. What is it that Emily Dickinson said? Water is taught by thirst? I cross a sandy arroyo into an even narrower canyon, dry as bone. I'm about to give up and turn around and get out of this arena of sand and rock. And then, high up above, I see something. At one place, the canyon wall curves into a crescent moon of sandstone. And this one place, against all odds, in that desert, is growing with vibrant green ferns and grasses, teeming with life. All around, as far as can be seen, is dry, barren rock, and here, appearing from that bare rock, is life. It takes quite a scramble to get up there. I climb the slope of grasses and ferns and thorns to reach the source, and the air is suddenly cool and moist in the shade of the wall. And then I hear a sound, and it sounds unexpectedly, gloriously, like this. like rain on a bone-dry day in a bone-dry desert. I position myself to stand where I can feel the drops on my skin. I look out where this freshwater spring trickles down into another canyon, finally pooling into a marsh where white-tailed deer come to drink, where a mother duck slides across still water with her ducklings. It's a spring. It's life in the desert. Oh, what a wonder there is life in the desert. I wrote that once when I was about 16. Life pouring forth out of bare rock, for, of course, water is life. There's no life on planet Earth, no fungus or algae or bacteria or virus or polyp or crustacean or vertebrate or invertebrate that is not made at least partially of water and that does not depend upon water as the matrix of its very existence. Where there is water, there is life. I've been wanting to do a podcast episode about water for a while now, and I've wondered how to go about it. 
a lot has been said about water in a lot of ways. So these episodes, and I think there's going to be three of them, these episodes aren't meant to encompass or encapsulate all there is to say about water. That would be impossible. One can speak eternally of water because water speaks eternally. Only water can say all there is to say about water. And water speaks in all its manifold voices, and every time a person speaks, it's another voice of water speaking. So these episodes are meant rather to give voice to some of the voices of water, what Herman Hess called the voice of being and becoming. And this is a voice that human beings have listened to for a very long time. The Many Voices of Water, Part 1, Seas of Melancholy and Bliss, today on The Emerald. Listen. This is the water of a spring that gushes out of a crack in a cliff in Zion National Park, Utah. Water pouring out of sandstone into the swirling waters of the Virgin River, into a slot canyon with 2,000 foot high walls. It can be 100 degrees outside, and in the narrows, shaped over time by a single stream, It's cool and green, growing with grasses, and vertical gardens on the cliff wall, dazzling orange columbine blossoming brightly. What voices of water have you heard? What has water spoken to you? For these episodes, I asked listeners of the podcast to chime in with their stories of water. I interviewed many people, from scholars of water religions to free divers to water activists, all to give voice to the many voices of water. Voices like this. I think when I was about five, my folks brought me to uh, this beach in Long Island Sound. Yeah, there were like little hermit crabs and tidal pools, and it was awesome. I was in the Sea of Marmara with my grandfather when I was 10 years old. And I remember always collecting mussels with him. We would do it in a cove uh, on the Princess Islands off the coast of Istanbul. As I was diving with him, he always gave me a sense of calm. What I'm thinking about is the first time that I ever um, experienced what I call a water spirit rain, which is that kind of light little rain that happens sometimes just for a few minutes. I love the water, but I have a deep fear of the ocean. So when I'm there, when I'm in the ocean, I um, worry about the creatures (laughs) underneath. Seeing the reflection of water in um, tiny little pools that have been carved out of rock. And with the rain, little pools have have collected. And I was walking in the evening and I could see the the stars reflected in the pool. That was really beautiful. There's this um, this mirroring effect that that water does. And I was very tired. I'd been driving for a couple days at that point, and I needed to rest. And I also had been looking for headwaters, for spring water to fill up at. And there are many different pullouts on this road, and I was driving and driving and driving. And finally, I got such a strong bodily salt response that this was the place to pull over. So I pulled over. There was a little stream there. I hadn't seen anyone for hours at this point that I had been driving. And about a minute after I 
pulled up and parked another car showed up in the same spot. And this guy gets out and he lets two dogs out and they're barking and loud and I'm a little frustrated at this point. And he pulls out these giant water jugs. And so I get out and I engage him in conversation. It turns out that this place that my body had so strongly responded to was a place that this man had been visiting for 40 years. And it was his favorite headwaters in the entire region and that he had never seen anyone else there ever. And so I got to fill up my water and taste this incredible spring water straight from the headwaters at that source. This is ocean water in Moloa'a Bay, Kauai, at a time of receding tide, swishing and gurgling over depressions in the reef. I'm standing there amid the water. It's running over my feet forming pools and whirlpools, ebbing and flowing in a ceaseless rhythm, voice upon voice upon voice, all the overlapping voices of water. In water, said J.R.R. Tolkien, there lives yet the echo of the music of the Ainur, that's the angelic music of creation, more than in any substance that is in this earth. And many of us, he said, hearken still unsated to the voices of the sea. Jack Kerouac sat on the seashore at Big Sur, California, and wrote a 3,500-word poem all based on the sound of the surf. Shoo, shaw, shush. Go on, die, salt light, you billion-year rock knocker. Our armies of anchored seaweed in the coves give off the smell of jellied salt. Reach, reach, some leaves haven't hastened near enough. Roll, roll, pearl the sand shark floor. A greeny polyandrava, a back, a forth, a shish, a boom, away, a doom, a day, a vein we firm, the sea is we. Parl, parl, boom, the earth, adi, sha, sho, shush, flut, revad, tapavada, pow. Koof, loof, roof, no, 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 oh, ya, 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 yo, ya, yer, For how long have we listened to the voices of water? Homer heard the sea nymph Amphitrite moaning out in the breakers. Amphitrite who nourishes the fish in all their uncounted numbers. The ancient Greeks paid a whole lot of attention to water. And one look at the Greek peninsula and the hundreds of islands that surround it make it clear why. The Greeks were utterly immersed in what Homer called the wine-dark sea and their stories and the great traditions that come down across the centuries are waterborne and infused with water and carry with them water's legacy still today. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever been to a city and seen a fountain in a plaza? And were there depictions of water beings on it? Bearded Neptune and his trident and triton and mermaids and nymphs and little cherubs spouting water? Thanks to the Greeks, water animism still lives in the architectural bones of our cities. The Greek mind and heart was interpenetrated with channels of water, networks of water, each of which was living, sentient, all honored, worshipped, sung to, activated. Homer named 34 distinct sea goddesses. Hesiod named 50. Realms of sea beings populated the Greek pantheon, hierarchies upon hierarchies of beings of foam and wave and ripple. Different beings for varying colors of ocean, differing beings for different temperaments of the sea, Dynamini, the dynamic power of the sea, Halia, the personification of saltiness, 
Doris, who rules those places where seawater meets fresh water. Galatea, the nymph who plays in sea foam. Komodoki, who steadies the waves. Limnoria, who rules the salt marsh. Speo, who rules sea caves. Tsamati, the goddess of sand. You can hear these names and think, wow, those Greeks sure had active imaginations, and of course, it's more than that. It's deep listening over time. It's thousands of years of being situated in a world in which water was the central defining necessary feature of life, in which water was imbued with personhood, agency, an active shaper, transporter, inspirer, carver, sculptress. Sculptress, that's what she's called in West Africa, the sculptress, a reflector, nourisher, absorber, dissolver, cleaner, transporter, all of which are deeply important aspects of nature in a living natural world, all of which are properties of water. And I feel that it does something for us to name these names of water again after all these years, to bring the reverence of specificity. It reshapes our minds a bit, sets context, brings details to life, re-enchants, reawakens all of which, too, are qualities of water. Yeah, I mean, every fountain has its nymph, every ocean wave has its ocean ed, every every source of water is home to water spirits. I had a chance to speak with Isabel Friend, who's a water-is-life educator, and a member of the board of Water for Life Global. And our conversation is going to be interspersed throughout these episodes. They're often called the genius loci or the spirit of a place. And you, like you said, it's in, it's in every <laughs> culture, Egyptians and Babylonians and Aztecs. And it's, I think it's really interesting to look at the way that people interacted with those over, over history. Um, you know, new mothers for example, would always take their babies to water, uh, sources of water, to pray to these divinities for, for their children's protection and healing. So new mothers would, would take and bless their babies at springs. And, you know, the Tibetans considered lakes and rivers to be the home of what they called Lu, which are really similar to the Nagas that you were talking about, these serpent-bodied sort of merfolk. But it's also understood, like, there's not just this this sort of new agey love and light <laughs> sort of, um, oh, let me just, you know, go and, and dance with these spirits in the waters. It's like, no, there was, there was an a aspect of respect and almost um, deference in a way. But it was understood, like, these are, these are beings of power. They can... Of course, they can bless, but they can also bring illness and misfortune. And so in every culture, when you approach a body of water, you do so with offerings, you do so with reverence. You know, in Tibet in particular, they would leave butter and prayer flags. In um, Nordic and Celtic Europe, they would they would come to these these deities for with all of their their questions they would query them you know for practical knowledge and divine wisdom but they had to follow very strict rules of conduct or they knew that they could be punished by those deities um they also actually the celts also had this really interesting belief that evil spirits can't cross running water (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it led to all of these really interesting uh 
rituals around like if you make a if you make a pact with someone or you, you know make a deal or an agreement you shake hands like over a body of running water or they would often have wedding ceremonies at bodies of water because it would it's this binding force but also um yeah evil spirits can't cross the running water so it's a way of blessing it and binding it at the same time the greeks thought that offending the deities at different sites of water could cause paralysis specifically mm. <laughs> and insanity and so yeah there's there's always this understanding that they're very real they're very present they're not figments of your imagination the greeks rose to prominence hand in hand with the sea the sea was the great connector salt water was the medium of transport of goods and ideas on earth just as it is in the body carrying oxygenated cells and nerve impulses throughout the circulatory system the greeks understood that whoever understood the sea would rule and understanding the sea meant humility before its awesome power the force of the sea of poseidon the one who shakes the world is a power not to be trifled with the sea in the greek mind is home to coiling energies and shattering forces and thunderous pounding hooves Manipi the sea goddess was the ruler of the strong horses of the waves and the horse is associated with the sea from Greece to Vedic India to Celtic Scotland you might ask yourself why the horse and then you might find yourself standing on the eastern edge of Hanalei Bay during a swell with 30 foot waves and the profile view of the waves sliding into the bay with their long white manes of spray trailing behind the thunder of the waters pounding like the thunder of hooves the cadence of overlapping waves like a team of horses at a gallop it's unmistakable waves are horses hippocampi the sea like the horse like the bull was unbridled energy raw gleaming thunderous energy it had to be respected failure to honor the gifts of the sea disobedience to this force of water meant ruin sacrifice upon sacrifice was made to the sea the primary offense of minos the cretan king comes when he tries to keep the shining bowl of poseidon that emerged from the sea for himself rather than offer it back his family the human family is then cursed to a fate of strange contraptions and labyrinths the curse of minds that cannot exist in healthy relation with nature and instead have to hoard it and technologize it the ruin of modernism all from a failure to give back to the sea what belonged to the sea so yeah it's best not to approach the sea with hubris the greeks famous arch rival xerxes King of Persia once tried to build a network of pontoons across the Dardanelles Strait so that his vast army could cross. A storm kicked up and the waves got big and the temporary structure was destroyed. So Xerxes made a show of having the water publicly flogged for its insolence. Flogging the water. I wonder how that worked out. Well, a few years later the same Xerxes misjudged the water conditions at Salamis. and his navy suffered a crushing defeat and the ocean ran red with the blood of his soldiers Xerxes who once claimed a vain mastery over water who once tried to have water flogged 
sacrificed thousands upon thousands back to the sea. But the true ruler is aligned with the will of the waters. Sovereignty in many traditions requires the acquiescence and the willing participation of water. So the rule of Arthur is intertwined with the blessing of the Lady of the Lake, and the Indic kings are anointed with water. The Mahabharata spends what, in the modern mind, is an inordinate amount of time in its first chapter establishing the family lineages of the Nagas, the water beings. And the mighty Pandava Bhima gains his strength from his time spent underwater, drinking the nectar of the water serpents. And the royal family of Luxembourg claims direct descendants from a water sprite. And the Chinese ruling lineages trace their genealogy to water dragons. And the king of Thailand's coronation features immersion in sacred waters. Quote, the waters were collected simultaneously between 11.52 a.m. to 12.38 p.m. on a Saturday, times deemed especially auspicious in Thai astrology by senior officials from more than 100 water sources across 76 Thai provinces. A similar sacred bath anointed the kings of Cambodia, who were anointed with water drawn from the Kulen Mountains, whose water is believed by Cambodian royals to be exceptionally pure. I've been to a spring on Kulen Mountain. We didn't know it was there. My wife and I were on a forest trail, and all around was these jungle shades of brown and rotting green, and all the rivers were silty, so they were a reddish color. And then all of a sudden, there's an opening in the forest floor, like a great crystalline dragon eye, a bubbling pool of crystal clear water and diaphanous white sand. In Cambodia, there's recognition of the sanctity of water everywhere. Water spirits adorn every Buddhist temple, every bridge, every household shrine. Serpentine water beings populate Cambodian sculpture and painting and dance. The Khmer people claim to be descended from Nagas. And a great seven-headed Naga inhabits Tonle Sap, the most productive freshwater lake in the world. Every year in Cambodia, there's the Water Festival, honoring the Naga of Tonle Sap and all the local resident water beings. There are offerings, feasting, boat races, water sports. It's a joyous event and a reminder that one of the primary voices of water is laughter. It's a vital and valuable experience to be in a place where the beings of water are still granted personhood and each waterway is revered. It helps us remember how vital the waterways are. For the Greeks, every single waterway, every spring, every rill, every creek, every rivulet, every river, every lake, every bay, from Greece across Anatolia, Bactria, all the way to India, had its resident populations of water beings. They were named. They were fed. They were sung to. Trance and ecstasy happened near water, near springs, near wells, on the seashore. Water nymphs took over permeable minds. Nymphalepsy to be seized by a water being was a particular state in ritual trance. And there were many, many classes of such beings. The Cranei who live in fountains. The Limnides who live in lakes. The Pagae who live in springs. The Potomaeides who live in rivers. The Elioimomei who live in marshes. Have you heard the voices in the marshes? Where Syrinx the nymph once ran, fleeing the amorous advances of the goat-footed god Pan, and she pleaded for the help of the river nymphs, and they transformed her into a cluster of river reeds. Pan, bereft, could only harvest the reeds and make a set of pipes, 
and lament the loss of his love with the breathy, watery sound of reeds by the river shore. There is an undeniable sadness, a lament to the voice of water, a deep reminder of the inevitable rhythm of time which washes all things away. British poet Matthew Arnold was certainly familiar with the melancholy of the sea. Quote, Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling. At their return up the high strand begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. But sadness is not the only note that water strikes. That same washing away that erodes over time and speaks of the inevitability of loss and change also soothes us. It rounds rough edges over time and dissolves calcified places. It softens. We might notice in time spent by the sea that discursive thoughts begin to evaporate like fine spray that the waves wash our worries away. Mythologist Martin Shaw was asked on the Emergence podcast recently about the best way to deal with profound grief. What did he suggest? Get yourself to a large body of water. That's deep alchemy right there. In fact, much traditional lamentation happens near water. Perhaps the ocean tugs at our tears, encourages that salt water back home. Perhaps tears are an attempt at reunion. It's said that the cult of the Greek goddess Leucotia worshipped her with frenzied lamentations on the seashore, enacted their deep grief amidst the morning waves. The early desert father Evagrius Ponticus taught a doctrine of penthos, of weeping openly for hours, even days at a time, to open one up to the divine. Pray first for the gift of tears, Evagrius said. And we've all felt that sometimes the only time things shift or change or are let go forever is when we let them go with tears. As Isaac Denison said, the cure for everything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. It's okay to cry for the state of our world, for the state of our oceans, for the state of the waters. And the waters receive those tears too. And the waters recycle them. And water rejoins water and re-expresses as water again and again and again. The waterways of the world receive our tears. The rivers of India are lined with funerary sites where bodies burn to ash and ashes return to water, and the tears of the bereft mingle with the river, and little lights are set to float on the gray tide at dawn. I remember a vivid image of being 19 years old at the burning ghats in Pashupatanath in Nepal and seeing a woman wailing as her husband's ashes were returned to the river to mingle with the swirling water. And then, just a few yards downriver, 
Children were laughing and playing in the very same water, as if the entire cycle of birth and life and death happened in one river. Grief and laughter in one river, and the voice of the river speaks to both, and all opposites speak through the voice of water, and commingle, and find dissolution even as they maintain distinctness. For as much as the voice of water is a lament, it is also the voice that soothes the lament. Wendell Berry invoked this power of the waters. Quote, when despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. We've all felt this call to water. Perhaps Herman Melville put it best in Moby Dick, quote, Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to the sea as soon as I can. Get to the sea, to the sea, cries Legolas in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. To the sea, to the sea, the white gulls are crying. The wind is blowing and the white foam is flying. West, west, away, the round sun is falling. Gray ship, gray ship, do you hear them calling? The voices of my people that have gone before me. I will leave, I will leave the woods that bore me. For our days are ending and our years failing, and I will pass the wide waters lonely sailing. There is both joy and sorrow in this lament. There is joy and sorrow in gazing out at the sea. How is it so? Perhaps, again, it's because we're mostly water ourselves, and there is a particular feeling when the waters that for a brief time express as us meet the waters from which we came and to which we'll return. There's a feeling when one stares across the sea, and it's like we recognize it as us. We know we're a part of it, and yet we know we're separated from it at the same time. And to be part of something and separate from it at the same time is the nature of our experience with water, and the nature of our experience as incarnate beings, mingled joy and grief and longing. All of this rich meaning is present in a single Portuguese word, saudades. It's what you say when you miss someone far away or when you long for a far-off land or a far-off feeling. Saudades. It's I miss you, but not just I miss you. It's the co-presence of joy and sorrow that comes from being simultaneously united and forever apart. It's that bittersweet feeling that comes when staring across the sea, which is why it is the feeling that permeates so many of the Brazilian ocean songs.
That's my dear friend Serena Joy singing the classic song Canto Gie Manja by Baden Powell and Vinicius de Moraes. It's a hymn to the Queen of the Sea herself. Ye Manja. Si There are many songs like this in Brazil because Yemanja is everywhere. She holds a very special place in the heart of the Brazilian people. How many names has the Queen of the Sea? The song asks. How many names? Quanto nome tem a rainha do mar? Quanto nome tem a rainha do mar? Dandalunda, Janaína, Marabô, princesa de Ayoká. Inaê, Sereia, Mucunã, Maria, Dona Iemanjá. You've probably seen pictures of her. Iemanjá, the sea queen in her tumbling gown, standing on the crest of a wave, a starfish at her crown, a crescent moon and seven stars above her head. On February 2nd, thousands upon thousands flocked to the shores of the sea in Brazil and Uruguay, dressed in white to give her offerings of flowers and sweets and coconut cakes and to light candles in her name and set little boats afloat. Active water worship practiced right now today on the shore of the same sea that laps at the shores of all the continents of the world. The rhythm calls her closer. The song calls her closer. In the drumming circles of Candomblé, she visits dancers in states of ecstatic trance. Her children feel her right at the crown of their heads. Queen of the Sea, come, look, O Queen of the Sea, come, here. Janaina Yemanja is felt, honored, invoked in Brazil, 
Uruguay, Cuba, Haiti, across the wide Atlantic to her homeland in West Africa, in Benin and Ghana and Nigeria and Togo, where water deities are, quote, ubiquitous and profoundly important. So Yemoja, as she is called in West Africa, flows right at the heart of the Aruban traditions practiced by millions upon millions of people. Scholar and Ifa practitioner Nikolai de Matos Frisvold speaks at length of Yemoja in his profound book on the Ifa traditions of West Africa. First in her form as Yemo'o, the primal sculpting force of creation, the one that shapes the dream of Obatala, divine consciousness the dreamer and the sculptress. Yemoja, before she came to Earth, were called uh, Yemowo, which is a name that means mother who sculpts, who shapes. So as you see, this kind of primordial relationship between Yemoja and Obatala is so. Obatala represents uh, the dreamer, the one that uh, comes with ideas, and uh, Yemoja, the one that gives form. Uh, in the human body, she is the water around the fetus as it's developing. Watala is uh, the idea, the dream of the fetus, Yemoja, the water around. So as this force that is uh, generating form and life to, to everything, she became known as Yemoja, mother of fish, as one of the first uh, beings that was created upon Earth. So she is the mother of all the energies of creation who in the world is manifest as what else but water. Quote, Yemoja is considered to be the mother of the bloodstreams of the earth, namely the great salty waters that can be seen as preserving the mysteries of gestation in the womb. She is associated with a womb that is always fertile because her own womb resembles the ocean. All marine life is sacred to her as are birds that live at the ocean shore and thrive in water. Yemoja loves coral and pearls. She is the mother of sea creatures and is as such the mother of us all, and a remembrance of the time when we made the transition from waters to dry land. She guards the cypress and mangroves that seal this mystery as the ocean merges with the forest. She is the movement of the waves meeting land, Yemoja is a force associated with the moon, with silver, lead, tin, and with all that is white and transparent. This is mediated with green and blue and associated with her original essence, which in turn relates to green wood and space, whether liquid or aerial. Thus, her shrines are located either at the entrance of the woods or on the ocean shore. And like the sea, she moves, shifts, adapts, quote, She is a paradox which we constantly witness. She is both a continuation of what exists and the energy of new, alien, and changing forms being the spirit that oversees cultural adaptation. Her prominence in the New World testifies to this, demonstrating her ability to span water and land just as the human being is a composite of water and earth. She is depicted in the diaspora as a siren dressed in white, rising from the oceans with seven stars and a crescent moon adorning her head. These associations run deep to the mysterious realms of Olokun. Currency and exchange and networking and culture are all fluid endeavors. Culture arose with the sea with the transport of ideas and goods through waterways and the sea ensured that culture always changed and adapted and absorbed and re-expressed, just as the waves do. 
trying to stem that tide, stem the tide of culture is like trying to box in the queen of the waters. Try it, it won't work. So Catholic saints sit right next to African orisha and indigenous Amazonian spirits on the altars in Salvador. This is Yemoja, the queen of the sea, at work, undulating and branching her way through history, creating cultural tide pools and eddies and branching streams. All syncretic traditions, all cultures, are what they are because of the ever-re-expressing connectivity of the sea. So she speaks of healthy exchange, cross-cultural pollination, healthy waters in the womb, healthy flow of waters in the body, in the culture, in the land, on the planet. She's the governess of all this, queen of the birthing waters, Yemanja. In the Afro-Brazilian traditions that honor her, there is a deep repertoire of songs that speak of the sea, songs that invoke waves and the place where waters meet and the meeting of rivers and seas, and songs that speak of salt water and coral and mermaids and starfish and sand. Sand at the bottom of the sea. There is sand at the bottom of the sea, the chorus sings with exuberant devotion. It would be difficult to count how many songs honoring how many nuances of water live in the memories of those who practice these traditions. And we have to consider something here. All the specificity in how the ocean is spoken of and sung to, all the specificity of sand and waves and tides sung with deep devotion, The songs are more than just lovely lyrical invocations of external natural systems. They are invoking forces that live also within us. They are songs that are designed to take people into states of trance, so they're invoking aspects of consciousness even as they invoke the ocean. What do I mean? Well, as Thomas Traherne once said, an object, if it were before my eye, was by Dame Nature's law also within my soul. In many Indian texts, Consciousness is an ocean. The supreme consciousness of the universe is a great ocean upon which we are tiny ripples. In the limitless great ocean of self, by the winds of consciousness, are produced wave upon wave of wonderful worlds, says the Ashtavakra Samhita. And from the Kashmir Shaiva traditions, quote, The heart is the enormous ocean, the ocean of light, the ocean of consciousness. The waters of consciousness that in the human being are broken by countless polarizing and divisive waves may be easily brought to a state of dynamic stillness by the process of immersion or absorption in the deep ocean of the heart. And, quote, When one's attention is released into the flow of the visarga, that's the flow of ever-emitting consciousness, and ridden much like a wave, then the finite point of individual awareness can perceive its own individual wave merging back into the enormous ocean of consciousness. So these are ancient Kashmiri texts that sound a whole lot like surfers talking about the experience that they have surfing, and they merge and become one with the water. Across two oceans and 500 years later, Goethe spoke of the oceanic feeling The oceanic feeling is a spontaneous expansion of consciousness through which natural phenomena acquire unaccustomed depth 
become charged with meaning, seem to lose their separateness both from each other and their observer, and appear in all their intense relatedness. So the ocean of the heart, the ocean of consciousness, this sounds like a lovely image and a wonderful metaphor until we start to consider how we're actually made of water and how precisely and exactly consciousness really is just like an ocean. Like, have you ever had waves of thoughts? Have you ever had currents of feeling? Have you ever noticed daily tides and how your mind works? Times of increased focus? Have you ever known someone who was really getting tossed about by the waves of their own minds, or dashed against the rocks, perhaps? Have you ever noticed that there are wave dynamics to your daily rhythms of thought and feeling? And in fact, these daily rhythms of thoughts and feelings are literally made of water? Think about it. Every thought or feeling you've ever had has somehow involved water. Right? Not just water, energized, ionized water, water-based cells in a water-based matrix. The transportation of thoughts, feelings, emotions, hormones, all of this happens in a matrix of water. The love you felt for your partner or child, that is a feeling that's made of patterns and configurations of ionized water. Nerve impulses and water-based hormones circulating in a being made of water. Because you know the old statement, you're 70% water. Well, you're 70% water by mass. But that's deceptive because a full 99% of the molecules that make up what you call you are water molecules. You are 99% water. So everything you've ever done, you've done through water as water. Water sings back to water. Water tells water of a song named Water. Great saltwater tides drew your parents together. And water met water and made you beloved, and you first grew eyes in a womb of red seawater, and seawater poured out all around you as you took your first blue breath. And surely your first lover introduced you to a tide of kisses made of seawater, and all the infinite aspects of love and feeling and life happened to us through water. So yeah, even if you're not into all this mythopoetic consciousness stuff, in which case I wonder why you're listening to this podcast at all, <laughs> maybe you can feel that consciousness isn't kind of sort of like a metaphorical ocean. Consciousness is an ocean, and our experience of the world is liquid. The songs that invoke water in trance traditions are exploring water on multiple levels. These geographies of the ocean they sing about, the depths, the waves, the sands, these are geographies in consciousness. In the Afro-Brazilian songs, for example, in the trance songs that deal with water, many of the songs pay particular attention to the seashore as a distinctly special place. Yeah. 
there's magic at the seashore, right? Because what is the seashore? It's where we stand on the edge of something profoundly mysterious. It's a meeting place of worlds. If you've ever seen the rich ecosystems where seawater meets land or seawater meets freshwater, that almost chaotic soup, that netherworld that is neither here nor there, that threshold between the known and the unknown, there's something very unique about it, something not quite formed, still in the watery process of primordial creation. The seashore may be seen as a sort of threshold, a jumping-off point, the place where everyday waking consciousness meets something far vaster and deeper and more mysterious. That's why they sing to the seashore, because she lives there, the one who takes people across the threshold of trance. We have these expressions, step into liquid, dive into the abyss, take the plunge. These linguistic expressions indicate a journey into water that is also an inward journey a journey into the mystery, because looking down into deep water is a lot like looking down into the depths of ourselves, and stepping into water is a lot like stepping into ourselves. Mystery is often synonymous with water, and you know why you've been in deep water, that feeling of not knowing what's beneath, that abysmal vastness, that which is hidden from us is mysterious like the depths of the ocean. Afi, a freediver, spoke about the experience of being underwater for several minutes at a time. It requires you to be so silent, and, and to, to do it well, you have to be, um, use the minimum amount of exertion, physical exertion, that you can to get yourself deep. And so that, I guess that silence and that stillness, and usually when you you go to whatever depth you're aiming to go at and then you kind of hang there for a bit and you come back up. And just those moments of hanging, like just suspension, um, and depending on where you are, there might not be like a, um, a gravity to go deeper or there might be a buoyancy to go up, but sometimes you're just in this completely neutral zone. Depending on where you're diving as well, you might be in a zone that um, you might not see anything. And if something comes, like a creature comes, it's emerging out of this haze, as if like out of mist, you know? And then it disappears back into it again. You might have an encounter or it might not pay you any attention. Or you just descend into the floor where there is just like, you've just dropped in on a, on a city, you know, like being helicoptered into a, you know, a, a really busy, you know, um, metropolis and it's most certainly you know home to so many things and and everyone's busy going about their day so yeah it's super humbling yeah it's great but the amount of um uh i guess there's this like balance of like tension between posure and control like self-control and and just wonder and you know that um really like mind-blowing like wowness but you have to contain all of that wow you know um which is a beautiful challenge this place of suspended breath floating in void dissolving into vastness it's like the experience of death and bliss what would it be like i've wondered to actually go into those depths and the promise of those depths uncharted worlds where we can leave ourselves behind and where we might literally be devoured. The water's really deep and you just have this feeling of 
anything could swim by here. Anything could come up here. You know, every day we're discovering new species um, and we're not even looking in a place like this most of the time. We just don't know what lives here. Whatever it is, is so much better adapted for the situation that we are, that we are completely at the mercy of like whatever comes by. Uh, and it's, a, I, I like that feeling. Yeah, it feels a bit similar to, you know, when you stare out at this night sky full of stars and you're just thinking about our role in the universe, except knowing that there are things that could kill you. <laughs> that are yeah, probably looking, not that far away <laughs> looking out in the vastness of the world and also things with big pointy teeth <laughs> right exactly that's john hosevar the director of greenpeace usa's oceans campaigns speaking about the experience of swimming in deep ocean water plunging deep into the mystery but as john says sometimes that sense of mystery that sense of the infinite nature of the ocean can work against us when we're dealing with a finite ocean on a planet of finite resources. And for so much of human existence, you know, we really just thought of it as so vast and bottomless that we could never do any meaningful damage. You know, it's, right. you throw anything into it, you could take anything out of it. The ocean is just too big to fail. Right. We unfortunately now know that that is far from true. Of course, I knew that if I was going to do a series on water, I had to talk about what we are doing to the great bodies of water of the world. I had to address the state of the waters. I knew the conversation with John wasn't going to be easy, and I'll tell you that after the conversation, I cried for a long time. As John says, part of the difficulty of our relationship with the oceans is that we've always had this sense of the Earth's waters as infinite, as an unending mystery. And it's true, we know more about space than we know about our own oceans. But the assumption of infinity has also led to a feeling that we can do whatever we want to the waters of the world without consequence. And now the consequences are becoming very real. Because, as we'll come to find out in the next installment of this series, how we treat water is a whole lot like how we treat ourselves. But that's for next time. For today, February 2nd, which is the day in which Yemanja, the Queen of the Sea, is traditionally honored by millions of people across Brazil, Uruguay, we can perhaps turn a little of our attention to the ocean, to the great waters, and cultivate a little of what Goethe called that oceanic feeling, and give gratitude and respect for all the waters that flow. My grandmother, final story here, uh, she would, she was always a little bit more mischievous. And I remember her taking us out on a day down in a beach again on, on the same island that I collected clams with my grandfather, uh, except we went to a kind of a low level quay that projected out into the water where the waves broke. And it just happened to be a day that there was a lot of inclement weather. You know, the weather was very menacing. And my grandmother was absolutely fearless, you know. And I was, again, around nine or 10. And, you know, I had a sense of self-preservation. So I was a little, you know, concerned about the weather. And suddenly there was lightning and, and there was thunder. And, I, you know, in Armenian, I was just like, hey, grandmother, I, I want to go back. And she just started laughing. 
you know, just cackle practically, you know, and I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And she's like, come in, come into the ocean or come into the sea, you know, because the ocean, the, the sea would break right against the quay. And I was like, no. And then she went in and the waves were crashing. They're not big, about three, four feet, but big enough for, again, a nine, 10 year old kid. And she was just laughing and she had just no fear. And I remember having that sense of awe. And, um, you know, we finally, we finally returned, but uh, it definitely, again, I guess I was left with this very powerful memory of the wildness, if you will, of, of the water and uh, some rain that was coming down, the thunder and the sea and, and all of that kind of commingling together. This episode contains reference to a whole bunch of books, songs, articles, etc. These include The Hunter's Trance by Carl von Essen, The Triadic Heart of Shiva by Paul Mueller Ortega, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, See the Sound of the Ocean at Big Sur by Jack Kerouac, The Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Odyssey by Homer, The Mahabharata, there's a layperson's translation by Ramesh Manan, Dover Beach, poem by Matthew Arnold, The Ashtavakra Samhita, The Peace of Wild Things, a poem by Wendell Berry, Thailand Collects Sacred Waters for King's Coronation Rituals by Panu Wangchaum in Reuters, the song Kanto Jige Manja by Baden-Powell and Vinicius de Moraes, sung by Serena Joy Bixby. Thanks so much, Serena. The song Inscrição by Maria Betania. The singers of Umbanda at the Yemanja Festival in Ikoaraki. The song Balanza do Mar by the Coral Filios de Yemanja. Ifa, A Forest of Mystery by Nikolai de Matos Frisvold. The Emergence Podcast. And, of course, many thanks to all the listeners of the podcast who contributed their own stories about water. There's more to come. If you'd like more info on the work of Isabel Friend, her website is waterislife.love, that's dot L-O-V-E. And to find out more about Greenpeace USA's Oceans Campaigns, you can go to greenpeace.org slash USA slash campaigns slash oceans. Or if that's too much to remember, just Google Greenpeace Oceans Campaigns and I'm sure the right site will come up. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.